Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring and Phil. I'm gonna need you to. Uh, I'm gonna need you to record on Saturday this week. And um, oh, no. yeah, I'm probably gonna need you to record on Sunday too. But, but I've been looking on for my, my stapler all over the place. Have you seen it? I, I have not seen your stapler. I'm sorry to say. I'm sure. I'm sure it will turn up. So what films are we doing? I can't guess. Well, well I, I hope people have figured out at least one of them. <laughs> Okay, well, as you probably guessed, we'll be doing Mike Judge's comedy classic of Office Space as one of our After the Endings. But before that, we'll be doing Will Smith's Hancock. Yes, two films I enjoy very much. Yeah, same here. Oh, but we will also be doing our top 10 films of 1978, and there's some good ones in that year. Yes, yes, lots of fun stuff to get to. Well, let's get into things then, shall we? Why don't we start off with Hancock? Phil, do you want to tell people what the story of Hancock is? Okay, yes, I will. I thought it was going to be a nice... Quick short one, you know, it's about a drunk guy with superpowers who ends up finding his true self, but there's a bit more going on, which uh, I think I'll just mention as well, just in case it shows up in either of our after the endings. So I shall crack on with that. I will say a little bit of a spoiler alert. Obviously, we spoil all of our movies, but there is kind of a, a twist slash reveal about halfway through this film. So if you haven't seen it, you may want to check it out before listening to this because it's kind of a cool reveal. So we don't want to ruin it for you. It certainly is. Uh, so we have we follow John Hancock, who's played by Will Smith. He's a drunk in L.A. who has superpowers. Yet when he uses them to stop crime, he causes millions in property damage, but he ignores court subpoenas from the city and everything else. And then one day he saves a guy called Ray Embry, played by Jason Bateman, who's a PR specialist who's been unsuccessfully been trying to get his All Heart logo going for charities and things like that. Ray ends up inviting Hancock for dinner, where he meets Ray's wife, Mary, played by Charlize Theron, and their son, Aaron. Ray says he'll help Hancock sort out his public image and convinces him to go to jail for his outstanding warrants and also show the world how much the city needs him. And as predicted, the crime rates rise and the chief of police asks Hancock for help and he gets a new super suit. Hancock becomes popular. During a dinner with Ray and Mary, Hancock reveals his immortality and that he has amnesia from something that happened 80 years before. Ray gets really drunk and Hancock and Mary end up kissing. First of all, she responds well to that, but then she looks angry at him and throws Hancock through a wall. And Hancock, rather confused by this, flies away. But the next day, it turns out that Mary is like him. She explains they are the last two members of a race that have lived for 3,000 years. They end up fighting and it gets on TV. And Ray shows up and Mary reveals that Hancock is actually her husband. It all goes, everybody gets a bit crazy, they all go separate ways. But Hancock ends up getting shot and while in hospital, Mary tells him that when the immortals pair up, they gradually lose their abilities so that they can grow old together. And But Hancock has always been a hero through the years and Mary always left him so he could recover. When she found that he had amnesia the last time, she couldn't handle it, so she went off and started her own life. They end up getting attacked by some criminals, and Mary is shot and mortally wounded. Hancock kills the man, but is injured. Ray saves the day, and Hancock begins moving away from Mary so that they can both heal. He takes little leaps that get further and further until he's strong enough to fly away. And he flies off and ends up in New York City. Ray and Mary are still together, and Hancock has painted the All Heart logo on the moon, so it's all good for Ray. And that's uh, Hancock. Very nicely done. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I will say one of the things, speaking of that spoiler alert, what, one of the things that killed me about Hancock, I, I saw it in theaters, so when it's revealed that you know Mary has powers, it was a big surprise. Mm. Then when the film came out on video, the cover art for the Blu-ray and the DVD release completely gives that away because it shows like Hancock in his costume, but then it showed like Mary standing behind him like in all black leather, like all super powered up. And you're oh, like – I don't know why they do that. Well, spoiler, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that really annoyed me. Because then people be watching it going, oh, well, what's this? Was They might go, oh, it was all right, but, you know, there's nothing special. Whereas if you didn't know the twist was coming, you might go, wow, it could lift right. the film up. Right. Funny. I mean, if, as soon as you look at that cover art, when you're watching the movie, you're going to be waiting for something to be up with her. So yeah. it really, I don't know why they did that. It really took a lot of the fun out of that reveal in in the moment. Well, but it's, it's like Terminator Genesis. I wonder how well that would have done if they hadn't shown the big plot twist in right. all the trailers. Yeah, yeah, well, that's Hollywood for you. Okay, then, so do you want to go through what happens in the day after? Sure thing. Well, Ray takes the All Heart logo to a number of big corporations, and with the logo on the moon having gained worldwide publicity, all the companies want to jump on board, kickstarting Ray's career. The family benefits as Ray starts making some serious money. Mary considers becoming a full-time superhero, but ultimately she decides to be a stay-at-home mom. Still, once in a while, if a particularly grave threat arises, Mary will don a homemade outfit and save the day. She becomes known as a mysterious superhero in Los Angeles, and the papers dub her Lady X. Meanwhile, in New York City, Hancock is on his nightly patrol. As he perches on top of a skyscraper overlooking the city, he's struck by something at lightning speed. The impact is so great that he flies across several city blocks and creates a crater the size of a dump truck when he lands. Regaining his senses, Hancock looks up to see that what struck him wasn't an object, but rather another superhuman. Ooh. And that's where we're going to leave things for now. Okay. So, that's mine. How about yours? Go ahead and give us your day after. Okay, well, Hancock ends up fighting crime in New York City, and Mary starts doing the same in Los Angeles. She wears a mask to better hide her identity, and Ray was worried at first, but realizes that Mary's powers and experience keep her safe. Ray's All Heart logo has proven a huge success thanks to Hancock's help. Hancock is still lonely, but enjoys the newfound respect he has from the public. He tries his best not to damage too many things. Also knowing that he is not the only one of his kind helps. Meanwhile, in a small laboratory in Chicago, a scientist by the name of Ezekiel Cronus accidentally uses the wrong chemical compound in his latest experiment, causing a huge explosion that levels five city blocks and kills hundreds. Ezekiel is surprised to find himself unharmed and in a field 200 miles from Chicago. I remember who I am, he cries. That's my day after. Very nice. So that was uh, my day after. I think there's some, going to be some similarities, obviously, but um, I think it's going to go different ways. But uh, what happens in your immediate aftermath? Who is this mysterious person who's hit Hancock? All right. Well, Hancock is shocked to see another man with superpowers. He declares, I am Stonehammer. Prepare to meet your end, Hancock, in his best supervillain voice. And then he starts raining blows on Hancock. But now that he's not caught off guard, ha Hancock manages to avoid most of them and glances off the ones he can't duck. As they fight, Hancock manages to get the story out of Stonehammer. It turns out that he, too, is an immortal like Hancock, and he, too, was suffering from amnesia until recently. When Hancock arrived in New York City, it triggered something that brought about Stonehammer's memories. Memories of being a cruel, harsh pharaoh in ancient Egypt, a narcissistic prince during the Crusades, and a slave owner during the 1800s. With his memory intact, he wants to take over the world, and he needs Hancock out of the way to do it. 
Finally, realizing that Stonehammer is as bad an apple as there is, Hancock winds up for one giant punch and uppercut right to Stonehammer's chin. It's so strong that it takes Hammer's head clean off. Hancock is surprised for a minute. Then he picks up Stonehammer's body, flies to the nearest police station, and tells them what happened. As he's sitting there filling out police reports, Hancock gets an idea. But what that idea is, you'll have to wait to see. Interesting to see what uh, happens with that, though. Yes, yes. Meanwhile, however, let's see what's happening in your immediate aftermath. Okay. Hancock is living day to day. Truth be told, he is bored. He stops muggers, thieves, and more, and he helps put out fires and helps save people caught in accidents, but he's very, very bored. He toys with going to help out in various conflicts happening in the world, but realises he would probably cause more harm than good and possibly escalate the situation. He talks to Ray and Mary regularly, but other than that, he doesn't have many friends. But while flying, one day, while flying over the city, he sees explosions in Times Square. Landing, he sees a man casually throwing cars into the air and blasting them with beams, beams of energy. Hancock flies at the man, but is shocked when the man knocks him away without even trying. Ah, Hancock, the man says. I knew you'd finally get my message. Who are you, calls Hancock, buying some time. Well, last time we met, you were calling yourself Zeus, said the man. My name is Cronus, and I am your father. Ooh. That's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Thank you very much. And then in a minute, someone's going to get their hand cut off, right, with a lightsaber? Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> D- different different movie. Well, you've had somebody with your head cut off. What's going on with yours, then? What's, up, what's Hancock doing with the body of this super guy? Well, no, that's, uh, he's not, it's not, it has nothing to do with the body of, of the guy. Oh, go on then, okay. All right. What's, uh, what's the aftermath, then, of his battle with the supervillain? Well, one year after his defeat of Stonehammer, Hancock activates the Skype video call. One by one, four other faces pop up on the screen. In Los Angeles, Lady X checks in. In Miami, El Matador signs on. In London, Union Jackhammer logs in. And in China, the Lotus Dragon comes online. After they make their hellos, another user logs in. Hey guys, it's me. Sorry I'm late, says Ray, who's clearly fumbling with some paperwork. (laughs) Okay, let's bring this, this first meeting of the Power League to order. I told you we're not using that stupid name, says Hancock. Well, we're, we're workshopping it, Ray replies. There's some market testing to be done still. The meeting moves on from there. Realizing that Stonehammer probably wasn't the only person in the world who might also be immortal, Hancock had searched the globe for other superpowered beings, following news of miraculous rescues, natural disasters, and the like, until he found three other immortals besides himself and Mary. As their search for more immortals continues, they decide to use their powers in different corners of the globe to help humanity when major crises arise. They can't team up proper because their powers will negate each other's, but they stand on guard, ready to protect the Earth. And it won't be long before their powers will be given the ultimate test. Ooh, nice. And that's that's my lead into the third movie. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I like that. Thanks. Always good to have more superheroes. Yeah, I figured, like, just because Mary said in the movie that they were the last two immortals, how does she really know? Like, maybe there's a few others floating around that, you know, they don't know about. Yeah, that's true. You'd soon lose touch over the years. Yeah, or maybe some new ones were born. We don't know the origins of the immortals. Could be anything. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. I would have liked to have known a bit more about what was going on. You know, a bit more information, but it's it's quite good that we sort of fill in the blanks ourselves. Right, exactly. Well, it certainly works for our purposes. <laughs> certainly does. For this yeah, episode. Yeah. All right, well, let's hear it, Phil. Bring us home with your long term. Okay, Mary and Ray are watching the battle on TV. It does not go well, and Hancock, badly injured, has to retreat. The news cameras finally get a close-up of the man who beat Hancock. Cronus, cries Mary in shock. She is about to fly out to New York City, then stops. On the TV, Cronus smiles and then glows. The live feed stops. It then cuts to a shot from outside the city. New York City is gone, destroyed in a strange, silent explosion. Oh, my. Uh, Mary and Ray sit stunned by what they had just witnessed. 
Hancock crashes into the garden and limps in. What the hell was that, he cries. Is it true, is he my father? Mary nods. How do we stop him? We don't, replies Mary. We need help. We need to wake the Titans. And that's where I end. Oh, very cool. Thank you very much. A little Greek mythology in there. Well, that's what I thought, yeah, because, you know, it's, uh, they've been alive for that long. Now, let me ask you this. When they go to wake the Titans, does that involve bringing five teenagers to a cabin in the woods and ritual sacrificing them? Oh, yeah. Oh, that could be yeah, tied into Cabin in the Woods, yeah. Ooh. Little, right, a little bit. Wow. You can go all different directions oh, with that. Yeah. We're building this after the ending cinematic universe. <laughs> That's right. Which clearly audiences aren't tired of at all. Mm. Cinematic so universe. Everybody out there, you know, you've all got to work out the connections yourself, but it's all there. Right. We've planned this out for like 700 episodes. <laughs> We've been planning this since episode one. It's all going to start yeah. to tie together now. Yeah, this is this is like the big change. This is like we know Captain America Civil War. Right, this right. Kind of thing. Right, so exactly. Everything's different now. <laughs> now, next episode will be the beginning of phase two of After the Ending. This is the, the ending of phase one. Marvel better watch out because we're coming for him. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, that was Hancock. Uh, Phil, do you have any trivia for us about this film? Yes. Uh, during Ray's first PR meeting, when he's doing the All Hot thing, uh, various Hollywood producers and directors play the board members, and that included Akiva Goldsman and Michael Mann. Oh, that's cool. I know, very cool. I need to watch it again, see who else was there. Dave Chappelle, George Clooney, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Leonardo DiCaprio were all considered for the title role. It was uh, originally called Tonight He Comes, and the script floated around Hollywood for over a decade, and it was later retitled John Hancock and then Hancock, and the original screenplay was much darker. Uh, but various cuts and things, and once Will Smith Smith got involved, he, you know, the upped everything a little bit more. And it contains 525 effect shots. Wow. And that's Hancock. Very cool. All right, well, then let's move on to the movie everyone's waiting for, and one of the most bona fide cult classics of all time, and that would be 1999's Office Space. Phil, I assume you're an Office Space fan like I am? Yes, I certainly am. I do like the film. It was a nice, pleasant surprise when I eventually got to see it. Oh, yeah. I have to say I was I was lucky enough to see it in theaters, uh, which I don't think oh, a lot wow. of people okay, can cool. say. I know because it uh, it didn't last very long in theaters, but I, I went uh, to see it. It was funny because a friend of mine had told me it was like the greatest movie ever made, and I, I he worked in an office, and I didn't, and I didn't I wasn't that interested in seeing it. And then I went out on a date with a girl, and she was like, I want to see Office Space. And I, looking back in retrospect, I have no idea why this particular person had any interest in seeing that movie whatsoever. Uh, but I'm glad she did because we went and saw it and I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, as I have worked in offices over the years, I've certainly gained a, a much greater appreciation for it. Yeah, that's it because it's working in offices and then watching it, you suddenly – sometimes it's it's not so much a comedy. It's just a documentary. <laughs> right. You know, of, of exactly. Because he just uh, – Mike Judge just got those people, those characters so right – you have those stupid little conversations that make no sense, but it's, it's it just happens to get you through the day. Yeah, and that, that that boss who just he doesn't actually listen to anything you say, but he just sticks to the rules and is just boring. Oh, but oh, before I forget as well, next uh, next episode, don't forget, Mike, it's Hawaiian shirt day. <laughs> I will be sure. sure we, uh, I'll be sure to wear my Hawaiian shirt, and I'll even have some yeah. extra flair. Brilliant, yeah, because it's important for podcasts. That's right. That we wear Hawaiian shirts. It's very important what we're wearing when we record, and even the things like the guy called Michael Bolton and. Just so many good little bits. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film. I love it. Okay, well, do you want to give us a rundown of the events in Office Space? Sure thing. So Office Space, written and directed by Mike Judge, starring Ron Livingston, Jennifer Aniston, Gary Cole, and Stephen Root. 
So, the story goes, Peter Gibbons, played by Ron Livingston, works as a programmer at Inatech with his friends Samir and Michael Bolton. No relation to the singer. <laughs> he hates his job. He hates his boss, Bill Lumberg, played by Gary Cole, and is dating a girl named Joanna, played by Jennifer Aniston. Peter goes to hypnotherapy, but the therapist dies midway through, and so Peter basically becomes hypnotized into being an ultra-laid-back kind of guy. Lumberg is baffled by his behavior, but a pair of management consultants called the Bobs think he's management potential. Michael and Samir and Peter enact a scam that will see fractions of pennies from hundreds of transactions deposited into their account. It was done in Superman 3. Yeah, it was. Uh, at, the, at the same time, meekish employee Milton is relegated to the basement and loses his red stapler. Peter eventually feels guilty and writes a confession letter and slips it under Lumberg's door with a check for all of the stolen money. But a disgruntled Milton finds the check instead and sets Inatech on fire, burning the company down. Samir and Michael Bolton find work at Inatech's competitor, Inatrode, but Peter finally finds a job he likes, working with his goofy next-door neighbor, Lawrence, on a construction site. And Milton ends up on a beach in Mexico, living the high life with the stolen money. Excellent. And that is the nutshell version of Office Space. Yeah, I always liked it as well in, uh, you know, the bit with his neighbor. The first time you see that, he just sat in his, in his room and then his neighbor just shouts through the, yeah. through the wall. Yeah. yeah, it's even stuff like that, like apartment living, you know, that whole sort of part of your 20s when you're like working, you're kind of on your own, you're living in an apartment type of thing. He just got everything about that right, you know, the friendships yeah. and the way they eat at the restaurants and everything. It's, it's very true to life, I think. Really like it. Absolutely. All right, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell us what happens the day after? Okay, well, Peter is still ultra laid back and he's happy doing construction work. Each day he knows what needs to be done, and by the end of each day he can see what has been built. It's a fair day's work. Joanna starts writing down the various silly things that had happened and the strange people she's met and the job she had done. And she also asks Peter about his work experiences, as it was this kind of thing which sort of got them together to begin with. Lawrence shouts through the wall about some of his various work experiences. On the news, they see a report about a Mexican resort being burnt to the ground, but nobody was hurt. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that's my day after. Very nice. <laughs> uh, that's fun. Okay, what about yours? What, what happens in your day after? All right, well, Peter, Michael, and Samir become astronauts and literally go into office space. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I just, I, for a while, I really wanted to toy with the idea of taking them into space just because of the name of the movie, <laughs> but I, I decided against it for obvious reasons. Office space too, yeah. out there. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but realistically what happens is Samir and Michael find work at Inatrode equally as unsatisfying as at Inatech. Samir writes a variation of the code they used at Inatech to steal the money and turns it into a computer program that invests the change you have after a transaction from your bank account into a savings account, which goes on to become a huge success. Meanwhile, Michael Bolton gets drunk one night at a bar and does some karaoke, ending up singing a real Michael Bolton song. One of the bar patrons is a record company A&R man, and he finds himself impressed by Michael's performance. And kids, for, for those of you who might not know, an A&R man is the guy who used to go out and find talent. <laughs> Nowadays, they just look on YouTube. But in the old days, they had to find people out in the real world. That's very true. Yeah. Meanwhile, Peter and Joanna are living happily together, and Peter is enjoying his construction job. Bill Lumberg is out of work after Inatech burns down, but his references are so poor that he ends up with the only job he can find, managing the local McDonald's, where he's constantly having to deal with two incredibly stupid teenage employees named Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> And that's nice. that's my day after. Excellent. I like it. Thanks. All right. How about your immediate aftermath? 
Okay, Joanna has also spoken to Samir and Michael Bolton and others about the terrible and stupid events that they've had to put up with in jobs. And she starts writing a book based on all this, but obviously changes the names. Peter and Lawrence are doing well in construction and they decide to start their own company and they call it TPS Construction. <laughs> Samir and Michael Bolton are just facing the same problems over at Inachode and they hate it. And they almost lose it when a new manager is brought on board. Bill Lumber. Oh, no. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very good. Okay, what about yours? Well, Samir has become a millionaire thanks to his investing software. Michael Bolton is wooed by the A&R guy and ends up recording an album of easy listening songs and releasing it on a major record label under the stage name of Michael Bolton Jr. <laughs> he hates the music and the whole act, but he scores a radio hit that becomes a huge number one bestseller and his album goes platinum ten times over. With Samir and Michael Bolton both multimillionaires and Peter in his zen mode, life is good for the three friends. But then, tragedy strikes. Michael and Samir end up using Drew, also known as the O-Face guy, <laughs> as their financial manager. But he embezzles some $50 million from both of them and flees the country. Devastated, the two of them ask Peter to help track Drew down. They call in the Bobs and form a task force dedicated to recovering Michael and Samir's wealth. Then word comes in. Drew has been spotted in Cabo San Lucas. The team mobilizes and heads down to Mexico to recover the stolen money. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, very good. I like it. And a bit of a manhunt. Yeah. And I like how they got, yeah, they got all, all the people involved. So John C. McGinley would be back as Bob. Yeah, that's what I really wanted to get him back in it. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead, Phil. Why don't you uh, give us your long term? Okay. Well, Joanna's book, which she called, I Don't Like My Job and I Don't Think I'll Go In Anymore, <laughs> is published, and it's a huge success. She is inundated with people sending her their stories of idiotic work practices and other people saying how her book made them finally quit their job and do things that they always wanted to do. Her life with Peter is very good. TPS Construction is also hugely successful. Many clients like Peter and Lawrence's brutal honesty when they go for new contracts. Milton has returned to the U.S. where he has inadvertently started a new cult <laughs> called Miltonism. Its practitioners believe that all they need in life is a few simple things, including a red stapler. <laughs> they are always polite, but if people decide to treat them badly, then they have to burn down the things these people hold dear, <laughs> but only in the metaphorical sense, of course. Oh, okay. Milton hates it, and the first church of Miltonism is mysteriously burned down. <laughs> Bill Lundberg wakes one morning and realizes he doesn't like his job anymore, and he doesn't go in. He thinks a change of scene might do him good, Maybe a job in radio or law enforcement. And that's my long term. Very cool. I like it. Thank you very much. Uh, I put in the radio thing because my first time I saw Gary Cole, it was a midnight caller. Oh, right, right, right. A show from the like, was it late 80s, early 90s. Sure. We did a talk show thing. I always remember enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Anyway, so what have you got for your long term? Okay, well, Michael, Peter, Samir, and the Bobs are staking out Drew in Cabo. The Bobs use a combination of credit card tracking, interpolation software, and trend analysis to predict where Drew will show up next. <laughs> they wait outside of a Mexican resort in a white van with a sneaker company's logo on the side. Was that a little not to sneakers? Yeah, yeah, a little sneakers yeah, Easter egg. Excellent. When Drew shows up, the gang piles out of the van to confront him. Drew sees them and turns to run away, but he only gets a few feet before he trips over a man laying in a lounge chair, spilling his pina colada all over the place. <laughs> the Bobs jump on Drew and pin him to the ground. Excuse me, but I believe you spilled my pina colada, says the man. <laughs> Everyone turns when they hear the familiar voice to see that the man is Milton. 
<laughs> Peter and the guys agree to let Drew go if he transfers their money back to them. So with Milton's help, they go to a local cyber cafe and return everyone's money. Michael and Samir reward Peter for his help with a few million dollars each. The Bobs decide to stay in Mexico and open a private detective firm with Milton working as their IT specialist, while the rest of the guys return to the U.S., Peter retires as a construction worker, marries Joanna, and they spend their days listening to Michael Bolton Jr. music, eating takeout, and hanging out with their friends. And that is my after the ending. That sounds like a very good life. Yeah, not too bad, right? Everyone's a millionaire. They all get to hang out, do what they want. I like it. I like it too. Completely realistic also. That's how it goes when you work in an office. You retire a millionaire at 30. That's it. Absolutely. Damn. I must have missed that memo as well. (laughs) Yep, yep. All right, Phil, well, how about uh, do you have any trivia space for us? I certainly do. Uh, Milton's red staple was made by the prop department as it needed to be bright enough to show on film. When the film was released, Swing Line got requests for red staplers. They'd stopped that color years before but decided to start selling it again. I actually got one of those as a present once because one of my friends knows how much I love the movie, so he got me a red Swing Line stapler for my birthday one year. Oh, excellent. I, I, I wouldn't mind one, actually. Uh, The PC load letter scene was not scripted. David Herman had more lines to say, but was interrupted by the photocopier jamming, and he didn't understand what that meant. (laughs) That's awesome. Which is kind of good. The movies had huge success on home video, because it made more money than it had in its theatrical release, and it made a huge profit in the end. Uh, It came as a huge surprise to the studio, and the then head of Fox's home release division was told of this while doing an interview about it with Entertainment Weekly. He did not have specific dollar receipts, but he looked them up on the internet and was so shocked he told the magazine, that's really amazing, it's incredible, which I quite like. Yeah. The film was loosely based on the short story Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville, and it's about a Wall Street lawyer who hires a new, a new guy for the office who initially works hard but then refuses to make copy on any of the tasks he's asked to do with the words, I prefer not to. Huh. Uh, Mike Judge has said more people talk to him about office space than any other project he has worked on. I believe that. Yes, me too. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our endings for Hancock and Office Space. And now it is time to move on to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take a year of Hollywood and share our top 10 films from that year. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your time machine and take us back to those groovy 70s and tell us what was going on in the world in 1978. Yes. Okay. We're strapped into the Wayback Machine and off we go. In 1978, the British Prime Minister was James Callaghan, and the US President was Jimmy Carter. And basically, the year seems to be composed of serial killers, <laughs> popes, and stolen bodies. Oh, great. So uh, we had Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, was arrested. He was a serial killer. I assumed he, I assumed he wasn't a pope, but thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Roman Polanski skipped bail and flees to France because he'd done unspeakable things. Uh, the People's Republic of China lift a ban on the works of Aristotle, Shakespeare, and Dickens. How very progressive of them. I know, yeah. Uh, Ted Bundy was captured, another serial killer. Uh, electrical workers in Mexico City find the remains of the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan in the middle of the city. Charlie Chaplin's remains were stolen from Switzerland, and they were found a few weeks later, 15 kilometers from the cemetery from which they were stolen. Now, Wuthering Heights, Kate Bush's debut single, charted at number one in the UK. Uh, Porn publisher Larry Flint was shot and paralyzed. Uh, The Garfield comic strip made its debut. Jimmy Carter signed a bill into law that allowed home brewing of beer in the US. Uh, John Wayne Gacy was arrested, another serial killer. Uh, The Space Invaders arcade game was released. And 1978 was the year of three popes, because Paul VI died on the 6th of August. John Paul I was elected on the 26th of August and died 33 days later. And John Paul II... 
uh, became Pope on the 16th of October 1978 uh, until he died on the 2nd of April 2005. So that's a lot of popes. Yeah. Uh, we also saw the births of January Jones, Omar Sy, Ashton Kutcher, James Franco, uh, Malin Ackerman, Justin Long, Bill Hader, uh, Keenan and Kel, Daniel Brühl, Zoe Saldana, Michelle Rodriguez, Josh Hartnett, James Corden, Andy Samberg, Anthony McKee and Rachel McAdams. And we saw the deaths of Bob Crane, Hubert Humphrey, John Cazell, Keith Moon and Harvey Milk. And 1978 saw the film debuts of Karen Allen, Kevin Bacon, Jim Broadbent, Billy Crystal, Jamie Lee Curtis, Corey Feldman, Ed Harris, Michael Keaton, Liam Neeson, James Spader and Alfie Woodard. Very cool. Well, that is a, certainly an exciting year and turns out an exciting year for movies as well. It certainly was. I got to say. It's a good film. Yeah, I got to say, you know, I, I bag on the 70s a lot. I mean, I think we all know I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of 70s cinema. I've said this, you know, many times. Um, and I think some of the 70s years that we've done have sort of borne that out in that uh, I don't always have a ton of films that I love. But I, I'll say 1978 was a really strong year yeah. with a lot of really great films that and and some iconic films, just some, some favorites in here. So I, I got to give 1970s. 78 props because it's a good it's a good year for films oh definitely there was i mean there was there was quite a few films that still i didn't i wanted in my list but didn't make it because of the other ones i liked more but it was a, an excellent year lots of directors and actors on the top of the game yes yes for sure okay then so that's this is 1978 what have you got for your number 10 well my number 10 will probably come in higher on some people's lists um so i, I may make some people angry right out of the gate but it is national lampoon's animal house oh yeah, uh, yeah famously starring john belushi and a lot of other great people um i like animal house it's a good film it's funny uh obviously i was very 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 young when it came out so i did not see it until many years later and i don't know that it had the same impact on me that it would have had i been a teenager or 20 something when it came out uh, but yeah that being yeah. said it's a very funny movie it's got some really iconic scenes in it john belushi is you know certainly a screen presence so i do like it enough to make it on my list but it's not a true true favorite um, but it's a good film. Yeah, no, that's an excellent choice. Didn't quite make my list, but I, I always enjoy watching it when it's on. Right, exactly. Uh, okay, my number 10 is Capricorn 1. Very good. It's a brilliant conspiracy th- film about a Mars landing or a hoax, uh, directed by Peter Hyams, and it stars Elliot Gould, James Brolin, Sam Waterston, whose uh, daughter, Catherine Waterston, was an alien covenant, and O.J. Simpson as astronauts. It's basically some astronauts are on a Mars mission, but before it takes off, they get pulled out because there's a problem with the, the craft, and then... It's like we always hear about the moon landing. They get taken to a soundstage, have to do this. And then as, the, as it's coming back, something happens and boom. And it's all very good. I won't say much more because there'll be quite a few people out there who haven't seen the film. Yeah, it's a surprisingly little scene film. Uh, but I, I yeah, do like it yeah. quite a bit. So good choice. Thank you very much. What have you got for your number nine? All right. My number nine comes in with Coma, starring Michael Douglas and Genevieve Bujold. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, based on a Robin Cook novel, his debut novel. I'm a big Robin Cook fan. I read his books for years and years. And um, actually, I just watched this movie again last night <laughs> because I hadn't seen it in many years. And I, I had the Blu-ray in my stack of movies to watch. I'm like, oh, let me refresh my memory. And it holds up really well. Um, it, it starts a little slow, but then it gets into that kind of classic 70s conspiracy sort of thing. And it, it does a really good job of taking 
you know, one person sort of discovering this conspiracy by accident through completely unintentional means and, and just sort of putting the pieces together from there and, and discovering bigger and bigger things as she goes. Uh, it's, a, it's a really cool kind of medical thriller. And um, I think it actually holds up quite well considering it's almost 40 years old. So, uh, yeah, that's my number nine. An excellent pick. It's, I've only seen it the once years ago. So if I'd seen it more recently, I might have put it in myself. Yeah. But it's, uh, I remember enjoying it at the time. I do like those kind of things where people go, oh, my God. And then you realize that loads of people are in on it. Right, right. I do like that. And this was the film that was, I mentioned Ed Harris made his film debut and it was this film. Oh. It was Ed Harris's first major f- feature film. Yeah, he was a pathology resident number two. Oh, so I'm going to have to go back and look at that. I know it also has yeah. a, um, has Tom Selleck shows up for about a 30 second scene, but he gets a big close up. That's close-up. right, yeah. yeah uh, he's got yeah. a big close up and a couple lines of dialogue. And I also believe that Kevin Costner uh, was an extra as one of the bodies in uh, one yeah, of the coma oh, patients. Yeah, so it's kind of a yeah. fun movie, a lot of a lot of trivia around it. But it, is, it does hold up pretty well. A little slow in the beginning, but once it gets going, it's it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, cool. I'll have to, I'll have to watch that again. Okay, my number nine is the John Millius-directed film Big Wednesday, which is a, it's about three surfers played by John Michael Vincent, William Catt, and Gary Busey in California. Basically, they're facing life. They're, f- you know, they love surfing, having a good time, and then the Vietnam War kicks in. And we're following these three guys as their life changes and uh, what they're doing to try and get out of the going to war and the sun they have to go. And it's it just, we keep seeing them through different points in their life. And it all comes back to the surfing, but it's it's a great film. It's got some great shots of the sea and um, and, and them surfing. And it's uh, some iconic moments and it's well worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I have not seen it. I'm not even terribly familiar with it, but I do love surfing movies, so I'm going to check it out. Oh, you definitely check it out. I mean, it's before Gary Busey just went, you know, Totally Gary Boosie, so right. it's it's uh, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, my number eight is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It is uh, the 70s remake, obviously, yeah. starring Donald Sutherland and uh, Leonard Nimoy, actually. It could have been higher on my list. I, I do think it's a slightly overlong film. It does have some moments where things slow down a little bit. But Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of the great classic sci-fi stories, and it's been done in various forms and various TV shows over the years. So many science fiction things have been influenced by it. So I I do love Donald Sutherland in this movie. I think it's a good film. Um, Like I said, it could have been higher on my list if it was a little tighter, but it still is a really cool flick. So I enjoy it. And that's my number eight. An excellent choice. Okay. My number eight is uh, the Jackie Chan film, Drunken Master. Uh, It's a comedy martial arts film. It's uh, got some great scenes. It's quite funny as well. But it's all, you know, he gets taught how to fight in the drunken master style where, you know, weaving around, falling over. We saw a little bit of it in in the recent um, Marvel Netflix show Iron Fist, but it's... uh you watch this film if you want to see the proper thing, and it's 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 a great film. Some great uh, fight scenes as always, and it's uh, it's lots of fun. Excellent choice. All right, well, my number seven is a musical. As we know, they don't make my list all that often, but I think people will forgive me for this one. <laughs> wella, 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 what is it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It is Greece, of course. John Travolta and Olivia uh, Newton-John. It, you know, I mean, it's Greece. I I don't really know what else I can say about it. It's it is a it's a great film. It's fun. The music is terrific. The dance sequences are great. It's it's such a classic, iconic movie. I mean, everybody knows something from Greece, even if they've never seen it. They know a song or yeah, yeah. a scene or something like that. I mean, it's just it's just fun. It's fun to watch. And if it comes, it's not something I go out of my way to see. But if it comes on, and I happen to catch part of it, I will sit and watch it because it's a lot of fun to watch. Greece, how can you go wrong with that? It's the word, as a matter of fact. It's, it certainly is, isn't it? I've heard that. Yeah. Didn't quite make my list, but it is a it's a great film. It's one of those musicals which is just. You know, as you say, everybody knows it, even if you haven't seen yeah. it. 
but pretty much everybody's seen it. I think it probably would have been in my list, but just the fact I've seen it so many times. Sure, I can understand that. It's probably probably a bit of overkill, right. especially when my daughter got into it as well. <laughs> yep. Okay, my number seven is a Sam Peckinpah film, and it is Convoy, starring Chris Christopherson, Ali McGraw, Ernest Borgnine, and Bert Young. And it's based on the 1975 country and western song Convoy by C.W. McCall and Chip Davis. And it's basically about this guy, Rubber Duck is a CB name. It's all about CBs back then as well. Uh, he's a truck driver, just doing his own thing. And then there's a dirty cop who ends up causing trouble. And he's, he starts heading off somewhere. And all the other guys, the other truck drivers join him on this mission. And he just basically realizes he'd become this leader, almost like a, a religious figure in a way. But it's it's just good watching all these the different characters, the trucks, there's some good uh, car stunts and things like that. And it, it goes quite dark as well in places because it's Sam Peckinpah. It's not the, probably not the greatest of films, but I really enjoy it whenever I've seen it. And I always like Chris Christopherson. Another one I haven't seen, but I am familiar with it. So it's on my list to track down. Excellent. All right. Well, my number six is George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, one of the classic George Romero zombie films. Uh, some would say the best. I would probably argue that it is the best of his zombie films. Uh, it's the one where everyone gets stuck in a mall. And uh, it, yeah. you know, it's a great film because it, it, it's not only it's a great zombie film, it also has this sort of you know take on America and consumerism. It's definitely, as George Romero often did, you know, fitting a message in among you know zombie carnage. Um, and it's uh, it's just a really cool film. Uh, I, you know, it's got great set pieces and it's scary. It's got some humor to it. It looks great. Uh, and uh, it's just a super cool, to me, kind of the, the, the height of the original zombie film craze. Uh, I, I think this is really the best one of, of that genre. Yeah, yeah. An excellent choice. Thank you. Okay, my number six is Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, starring Rob De Niro, Christopher Welken, John Cazale, Meryl Streep, and loads of other people. And it's basically, you follow these three guys who work in a steel mill and they end up going to fight in the Vietnam War. Oh, and it goes to dark places, Russian roulette, all kinds of things going on. But uh, I, I, it's one of those films where I didn't see for a long time, even though I've always been into films, but it was one of those ones where you're going, oh, it's, you know, it's all dead serious and all this and that. And, I've, you know, you end up putting it off. But then when I sat down and actually watched it, realised what a fool I'd been. <laughs> uh, and because it just it blew me away. It just took took me through. You just these eyes it's it's just it's a slow build you, you know lots of character building and the, the horrors they go through but there's no you know there's no watch and anything like that but it's uh <laughs> it's it's oh it's cracking and just the you know the way it ends is just uh, heartbreaking but it's uh, a, a classic and rightly so very good choice did not make my list um i like you i, I had waited a long time to see it and it, it to me is a little too much of what i don't care for in 70s cinema it's it's too long too bleak you know, too dark, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's a good film and I recognize that, but just not a movie that I, I have any real connection to. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, my number five is a sequel and it is a sequel to one of the greatest movies of all time and it is Jaws 2. Um, and I know a lot of people don't give Jaws 2 a lot of credit. I mean, certainly it's a it's a more well-regarded sequel than Jaws 3 and 4 are. I think people, you know, generally like Jaws 2. Um, but I, I think Jaws 2 is interesting because... I mean, first of all, I love shark movies, so it doesn't take a lot to get onto my list uh, anyway. But Jaws 2 sort of is like – Jaws 1 is like a thriller. Jaws 2 sort of goes yeah, straight yeah. into like horror movie 
territory. I've actually heard it even being described as a slasher film before. Um, they up the oh, body yeah. count, you know, big time. I, I love the climax, all these kids out on their like little boaty things, and there was that cable junction island, and you know that last like half hour, forty five minutes, of the movie is really tense, and uh, I, I think it's a really fun film. So that's my number five. Well, yes, it, it is a fun film, and it's uh, it's also my number five, and I agree with everything you Very said. Good. It's, uh, it's you, you, it's right that they didn't do. Well, you're never going to capture the original Jaws again. So it's nice that they did do it a bit. They went a little bit bigger. I think describing it as a slasher film is pretty good, actually, to be honest. Right. There's loads more deaths. You get, you see a bit more the people who get killed. You, you see a bit more of the character about them, especially because it's all like mainly a group of teenagers, you know, trying to have sex with each other <laughs> right. and, and drinking and things like this. But it's some great, especially the end and when Chief Brody's got the, uh, you know, the big cable thing. He's, he's whacking it with the oar. Yeah. Things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, a good, it was a good sequel. And it's not often you can say Right. That. Well, especially from that era. You know, I mean, nowadays we yeah, get spoiled yeah. with sequels. But back in the 70s, sequels were often, you know, crap. So, uh, you know, again, it doesn't compare to Jaws, but on its own merits, it's a really good film. Yeah. All right. Well, my number four has already appeared on your list. And actually, I, I got to say, Phil, I was a little disappointed that it didn't come in higher for you. But it is Capricorn 1. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie I just really love. I discovered it only a handful of years ago, and I'd never seen it before. I'd never heard of it. And most people I've talked to about it since then have never heard of it either. Um, but it is just really a great kind of sci-fi not even a sci-fi sci-fi film actually really it's a conspiracy film yeah, yeah. um you know and it's it's these this this mars mission that gets scrubbed and and it just really captures everything that's great about that conspiracy genre and it has this sort of science background space background to it but the cast is great the story is great it's really tense and exciting you know it starts at the beginning the tension just ratchets from there and it, it never really lets up and i was it's one of those movies that i watched when I got the DVD a few years back when it came out, I sort of said, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me let me throw that in and see if it's any good. And then I was just riveted and I watched it from start to finish and I was, you know, floored by it. So it's really high on my list just because I, I think it's just a really great film. Uh, and it was fun to discover it knowing nothing about it. Yeah, I must have. I saw it must have been in the 80s, must be late 80s, must have been on TV. Right. And I remember not knowing anything about it, you know. Back then, it was always good because you'd you'd, t- you'd see a film was on, you'd read like a little bit in the newspaper, or something saying this is about some you know a Mars mission. So I go, oh, I'll put that on, and then not knowing what was going on, and then seeing the whole conspiracy thing build up, and you're going, oh my god, <gasps> didn't expect that, and then more things happening, and you know it just took me by surprise every which way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's definitely one which more people need to to watch. I agree, I agree. Okay, my number four has been on your list. It is Dawn of the Dead. I had a feeling that would show up. Yes, as you say in the shopping mall, it's a classic. It's probably. I prefer this one more than Night of the Living Dead, which could be blasphemy to some, but I really do enjoy this one because, you know, it's, it's mainly because it was a bit different as well. It was a sort of, nowadays you get a bit blasé with zombie films. Yeah, definitely. But this one, it had the whole, you know, it's talking about consumerism and the like, but also it's, it's telling you about zombies in a shopping mall killing people. Right. And people trying to survive. Yeah. And it's, 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 I think a good zombie film, one of the little byproducts of a good zombie film is when you're there going, oh, what would I do if I was in that location? How would I do it? And things like that. And you'd be, you're trying to come across with things. And, and of course, I had the big scene with the helicopter cutting the, the, and the zombie gets his head chopped off and lots of other cool zombie deaths. It's got the whole, you know, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth kind of That's thing. That's one of the greatest taglines of all time. Yeah, I know. It just works so well. You're there going, wow, I need to see yeah. that. It is a Romero classic. Indeed it is. All right. Well, my number three is a movie I really, really love, and I... I feel like it's kind of fallen off the pop culture radar in recent years. It's not even on Blu-ray, it turns out, which is terribly disappointing to me. I'm, I'm hoping for a Criterion Collection version of it soon. But it is Warren Beatty in Heaven Can Wait. Uh, it's it's a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan from 1947, which is also a movie I love. And it's about a, a, 
a guy who gets taken from Earth too soon, and then he gets put back, and he falls in love with the girl, but he's not really this football player. He's him, and it's a comedy, and it's utterly fantastic. I did a terrible job of describing it, but it's it's really, <laughs> really great. And it, I watched it when I was a kid for the first time, and it was my first introduction to Warren Beatty, who I've always been a fan yeah, of. Yeah, me too. So yeah. it's the first film I'd seen of him. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's just magical. It's so much fun. It's so well done. It's so clever and witty, and Warren Beatty has never been more charming, in my opinion. And uh, it really introduced me to a lot of things, uh, kind of football I got interested in because of this movie, and just a, a movie that I, I think really deserves to sort of be remembered. I think people have kind of forgotten about it. So uh, hopefully it will make a Blu-ray debut soon and maybe get some special treatment because it's really, really fantastic. If you've never seen it, really track it down. It, it holds up very well and it, it's a film I, I, I love dearly. Yeah, it's a beautiful film, actually. I do like that. It's, uh, it's, it almost made my list. It was one of those ones kept bubbling in and out of it. But I'm, I'm, surprised, it's, I'm surprised it's not on Blu-ray. Yeah, I know. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. It was a big hit, wow. too. It's not like but it's no, some it, cult movie, it was, you know? Yeah, yeah. Go figure. No, it's a brilliant film. I need to, I need to watch that again as well. I, I do, too, I but I'm waiting for it on Blu-ray. A very nice choice for your number three. My number three, it's already been on your list. It is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. Another one I had a feeling would probably show up. Yeah. I just I just like the, I mean, as you say, this, lots of the 70s films have this bleakness, but this this one... The bleakness is essential for the, the story. Yes, yes. It's you know you need to you need to these people discover that aliens are, are among us and they're replacing other people, and you're going oh my god what are they going to do what are they going to do how are they going to get out of it and then they all realise that you can't because it's already been happening for a long time right and I mean you got Jeff Goldblum Leonard Nimoy Veronica Cartwright and Donald Sutherland just and the way you know the that scream or screech that the yeah. aliens do and oh. It's just it just stayed with me. It's my I think it's my favorite version of the the Body Snatchers films. Oh yeah, definitely. It just makes my you know the the hairs on the back of my neck you know rise up and just you just think going again like Dawn of the Dead. You're going, what would you do in that situation? And then like them, you realize there's nothing you can do. They're going to get you in the end. Right. Okay. So we're now into our top two. All right. Now I think there's a good chance maybe we're going to have some some overlap in our top two. Yeah, I think it could be the top two, but there might be. Depends if they're in the same order. Right, exactly. So we'll see what happens. But I think they could be. Could be. Could be. We'll see. My number two is the movie that made you believe a man could fly. And it is Superman. We got a bingo. It's my number two as well. There you go. I I knew it would at least be on your list. I wasn't sure where it would be. But yeah, I mean, it's the original Superman film. Richard Donner uh, introduced the world to Christopher Reeve. And I I mean, yes, yes, I know there are problems with it, like like him turning the world backwards, you know, reversing the Earth's orbit and and it turning back time. I get that. But wait wait a minute, though. That could well happen in Justice League. (laughs) First of all, movies were, were a little less sophisticated when it came to superheroes back then. But let's face it. I mean, Superman. Man really was the first superhero film that ever really worked. That wasn't yeah, just a yeah. cheesy, you know, quickie film, and it really took the matter seriously. Uh, Christopher Reeve could not have been more perfect casting as Superman. Yeah. He was, he was. I mean, sadly for him, but I mean, he still had a successful career. But he was, he was Clark Kent and Superman. Oh yeah, he was. He was yeah. definitely to to me still the best Superman there's ever been. And um, and he, you know, he captured both halves of it so well, like you just said, yeah. both Clark Kent and Superman. And that's the thing I find with a lot of superhero, you know, movies where they the actors get one right but not the other. You know, they get the hero yeah. or the secret identity, but but not both. But you know, it's a the special effects were groundbreaking at the time. Uh, it's just it's just a really great epic superhero film. It does the origin story right in terms of you know making it interesting and keeping things moving. And I I really love it. So that's my number two. Yeah, well, it's my number two, and it's uh, Christopher Reeve's performance. They just I mean, and the script as well. They just because the folks they get the character. They focus on the character of Superman 
Right. But not at the expense of, you know, having the spectacle of him using his superpowers. Exactly. And it, but the, yeah, um, well, I think my favorite scene, though, is when he goes to Lois Lane's apartment and he says, Clark Kent, and he's there, and then she's getting ready, and he says, I, I've got something to tell you. And then he takes his glasses off. And you don't realize he's been slouching or something, but it's, he suddenly stands up. Yeah. And then suddenly he's Superman, and, and, and that moment he's suddenly going, well, yeah, I can understand now why people would go uh-huh. not make the connection because you hadn't realized he was the way he was standing was different as Clark Kent until that moment, and he stands up and, and just straightens out, and you're going, my God, how did he do that? It's amazing. Right. I love that bit. Yeah, I mean, the the whole Clark Kent and the Superman you know, deception has always required a pretty healthy, you know, willing suspension of disbelief, but he made it as believable as he could, and it was all yeah, those yeah. little things. You know, his, his Clark Kent was so bumbling and tripping over things and stuttering and doing all that that, you know, he, he made it as believable as it could be that people would not think that they're the same person. You know, it really was a masterful performance. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that brings us to our number one, and if I know you at all, Phil, and I think I do, I am pretty darn sure we've got the same number one film yeah attack of the killer tomatoes that's what it is <laughs> that's what it is you got it uh it is it is my favorite horror movie of all time it is john carpenter's halloween yes i i mean this was kind of a given i think but, <laughs> um you know and you know this is again when i came to i don't not later in life i saw it in my 20s but not i didn't watch it as a kid uh i, I didn't watch horror movies much as a kid at all i kind of got into them in my 20s and yeah i was pretty much may maybe like from yeah late late teens maybe right right yeah late teens early 20s and so I, I remember very much the first time i saw this and somebody told me i had to see this movie and i watched it and i was just blown away by it and what i love about it so much that uh is so is so great is is how scary michael myers is just standing completely still for one oh christ yeah. um, and and for two how low the body count is in the film i think only four people die and and for the most part there's hardly any blood at all and and so many other films get that wrong you know you can make a slasher film without having to see every single person disemboweled and yeah, you know blood yeah. and guts everywhere and i know that certain other films like like friday the 13th that was kind of their thing um but i love slasher movies because of halloween and i I wish more of them could do what what Halloween does. I wish they could get back to that and and sort of go for that sort of just real dread and terror and scariness yeah. of Michael Myers without having to be just blood, 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 and and more blood. You're right because there's hardly any graphic violence and there's not really. I don't think there's any gore, is there? No, there is really it? isn't. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's this. It's the it's the whole build up, isn't it? You got Sam Doctor. Sam Loomis, you know, the way he's talking about uh, Michael Myers. Yeah. that's Well, first of all, you've got the perfect intro, you know, and you've got, you're, through the, you're looking through this mask and you see this guy going on the house and then killing people. And you go, right. oh, my God, this must be some terrible guy. And then you realize it's a little kid. And then you've got Loom, Dr. Loomis is talking about Michael Myers, about his you know, pure evil. So you've got a less build up before, you know, the film's re- really started. So you're yeah. all, all, you've already got it in your head that this guy is terrible and you don't want him to be anywhere near you. Right. And it's just it's just perfect. It's so economical in the way it does everything. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And those shots like where he'll just be standing on the sidewalk and then, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis will look back and he's gone and you're just like, Oh my oh, god, yeah. it's so creepy. I know and then you look at you you keep watching every frame you know, the film going, Well, where is he now? Right. Where right. Can he be? And exactly. when he's just even when he's eventually, you know, he's, he's coming to get uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. And she's seen him at the house to the side, he's just walking slowly across the road. He's just yep. you know, walking is pure walking slowly, and this was uh, this was Jamie Lee Curtis's film debut as well. In this one, and she does a cracking job. Oh yeah, and became a scream queen. Yep, uh, as they say. But uh, no, a brilliant, brilliant slasher movie. It's yeah. probably the first. I know there have been others, but this was sort of like the first of the 
what we consider a slasher movie, don't we? The modern day slasher movie. Pretty much. It was definitely the most successful early one. There was a couple that came before it, but this was really sort of the, the prototype. The one yeah, that I think sort it was Black of, Christmas, know, wasn't it? Yeah, before? Black Christmas, yeah. right. It was really the main one that came out before it. But it's still kind of considered the one that really popularized the genre. But it's a classic. I love it. And I, I think yeah. it's still, to me, one of the creepiest films ever. Oh, definitely. But and I, I love watching it. Every Halloween I watch it as well because it's just... Right, right. It's perfect. But uh, back in, when John Carpenter, you know gets things right he god he gets things so right oh yeah absolutely and this is definitely one of those mm-hmm. there you go all right well halloween so two two shared films at number two and number one uh not a big surprise when you consider what films they are but yeah yeah uh, still a pretty a pretty good year for movies uh nice nice list we also had jaws to the same place and a few few other films that we had both picked all right well that is going to wrap up things for us or at least start to uh before we head out phil why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week i will my guess uh next week we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1960 yes we and we will also be going after the ending of danny boyle's adaptation of the beach that's the one starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and also Gremlins 2. Yes, should be a fun episode for all involved. So please come back and join us then. All right, well, that's going to do it for us. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm still looking for my red stapler. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. After the ending. Maybe he decided he needed time to deal with the whole Jaden situation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's always so good to see what he tweets. Uh, that's what I'm saying. He's got to be like, all right, I can't make a movie for a year. I got to stay home with Jaden and whip some sense yeah. into that kid's head. Just stop tweeting. <laughs> I know somebody else that I feel like that would apply to, but I can't put my finger on who. Oh, no, I don't know. I think you've chumped me on that one. <laughs> hey, can you do me a favor and just wiggle all your connections for me? Wiggle my connections? <laughs> yeah, that, that's not a come on. <laughs> That's, yeah, hold on a minute. My, my printer's just got a weird message. It's, I don't even know what it means. <laughs> Your printer's oh, getting okay, messages? Let's carry on. What, from like outer space? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, Is it a message from the future? Is it future Phil reaching back to tell you something important on how to save the human race? Yeah, he's just giving me the perfect ending for my after the ending for office space. Really? That's all future Phil has? To, he's giving you an ending? He can't give you like the lottery numbers or something? Damn future Phil. Damn it, he didn't think it through. Hey, future Phil, when you hear this, you suck. <laughs> Phil, I assume you're an office face span... Office face span? Yes. Yes. Are you are you an office face span? Mike, can you explain what it is you actually do here? <laughs> At the moment, no, I really can't. <laughs> yeah. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very good. Did you just close a guitar case? What was that noise? It was me leaning back in the chair. Oh. Just almost, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Anyway. Close the guitar case. That was very specific. <laughs> it sounded like, like you know, in the hard guitar cases, like the, the metal buckle snappy things. Yeah, yeah. That's what yeah, it sounded yeah. like. They're all fair enough. What was that show? Things Buzz Aldrin. No, things Neil Armstrong said, <laughs> could have said on the moon. Oh, my God. I'm still on the moon. <laughs> right. I still don't think that's what Neil Armstrong sounded like at all. It's exactly. I met him many times. We used to. Because <laughs> we, we've heard the clip. We've heard the clip. It's all like, psh. That's one small step for mankind. And you're all like, that's one small step for mankind. That's what he sounded like, but because of the distortion from being in space, <laughs> it sounded, you know, all, oh, yes, yeah, he sounded like he did, but he's actually turned like this all the time. <laughs> I see. Good to know. No offense to Neil Armstrong's family. Yeah, we'll, we'll add him about. to the list of people who are never going to appear on our show. Him and Ridley Scott uh, and Christopher Nolan, clearly never going to be guest stars yeah. on our show. Yeah, well, I think he's, in fact, he's dead as well. Well, that probably has something to do with it, yes. Although, you know, 
you know, time dilation effects of space and distance. See, and, that's right. You know, interstellar kind of thing. Yeah. You know, maybe it could happen. Maybe he's going to come back to life from the future just to be on our show. Yeah. Ain't no way I'm talking to these guys that <laughs> left me on the moon. 